to everyone. Our young people can head to children's worship. The rest of us, you can grab your Bible. We're going to eventually be in John chapter 1. I do have a couple of housekeeping things, two different housekeeping things we're going to spend some time with before we get there. Uh, the first, I want to reiterate to uh, what Dave mentioned right out of the gate, that tomorrow uh, we have our annual church business meeting uh, in, in the idea of that maybe excites some of you and bores others of you, uh, but I, w- I do want to just highlight a couple things about it, um, and actually, why don't you just, just in honesty, this is not like a guilt or embarrassment of you, but, uh, and you don't even have to like raise them high, just maybe just give enough so I can see it, but if you're a member here and you don't intend to go to the business meeting tomorrow, can you just let me know? Okay. Here's, here's what I want you to do. Um, in a minute, I, I want to give you a couple highlights because I know you're going to miss the meeting tomorrow. Uh, you can take the annual report uh, with you and, and let you know about that. Uh, that's not to say, like, I, I expect you to come back or anything. Uh, it's okay. I, I do want to give you some of the quick highlights, and if you're here, just kind of some of those things as well. Uh, and then if you're a member here, uh, what we would love for you to do is on your way out, on that table in the back is a little ballot uh, with a few things, the budget, and then who our elders and leaders are, and you can vote on them. Uh, we would love for you to vote. You, it's an absentee ballot. So you vote, you stick it in that box on the back, uh, and we'll count the vote if they're uh, in favor of what we want, and if they're not, that's a joke. Okay. Brings me to my second point. No, uh, so table that. Um, here's, here's what I want to tell you about the, the actual uh, annual business meeting, some of the things we're going to hit on. We, we try to, uh, over a short period of time, do a couple things. We want to let you know uh, what the Lord has done over the past year in the context of the church, uh, and then kind of point to where we think uh, the Lord is leading us over the next year in the context of the church. And so uh, that was uh, a really exciting thing to spend time considering and thinking about uh, as we worked on that this this week because uh, God has done some really incredible things over this past year, uh, especially in a year that was as wild and turbulent and different for churches as there has ever been, uh, really from uh, last year in early January and some of the things that we were really thinking about and considering uh, until now, it's, it's a pretty wild change uh, from where we're at and where we were going to go. In fact, one of the things that was really fascinating about that is in January and February of last year, uh, we had started to have conversations in our leadership levels about what it would look like to go to a second gathering uh, because of what our attendance had sort of swelled up to. And, and so we were excited about that, uh, but felt like, man, that is a big, weighty decision. There would be a lot of planning that would have to go into that. It might take months to do that, right? Like that is so laughable to me right now at this point that uh, within the course of a couple of weeks, we just, we're forced to pivot and learn on the fly and, and make some things happen. And, and praise God, uh, he has sustained his church in that time uh, and has really done some incredible, miraculous things through that. And so we've been really fortunate to watch some of that. Uh, I'll give you a couple, couple things that really for me, are means for rejoicing. Uh, we saw 12 people 
join our church this year. So we welcomed 12 new members this year in the official context. We also saw people kind of latch on or are here with some regularity, though they aren't in the official membership context. Uh, they're, they're practicing membership. Uh, and so praise God for that as he continues to kind of work, uh, mold, and build the church body here. Uh, in addition to that, even more exciting than that, we saw nine individuals this year uh, follow in believer's baptism uh, and, and profess Jesus Christ. Thanks, Heather. The rest of you, <laughs> that lame at night thing. Okay, so uh, so nine baptisms, and then uh, the other the other thing that is is not as exciting as the baptisms, but I do think this is really a neat neat thing. Um, we have we have consistently over the past several years budgeted um, in, in a way that I would call aggressive. Uh, we've just we just tried to make sure that we're being faithful with money. We've tried to make sure that we're not. Uh, building up large cash reserves. Uh, we're trying to make sure that we are stewarding what God entrusts us with. It's not our money. It's God is giving it to us so that we might employ it for the work of the ministry. And so if that's giving it away, if that's using it for something, if that's kind of building up something that would be gospel-oriented in its way, shape, and form, that's always going to be our goal. And so we, we try to be uh, really kind of pushing forward to say, okay, We'll just expect that as we are faithful in little, God will give us more, and we'll be faithful in that, and God will give us more, and we'll be faithful in that. And so we just, we just believe in that concept biblically. Uh, and so we set a really aggressive budget goal this year. It was higher than it's, it's been since I've been here by a considerable amount. We, we budgeted uh, to, to run about $230,000 in expenses, uh, which we did. Um, and, and that was exciting to us. Uh, we budgeted to get, based on what the year before was about $220,000 in income. So we were spending down a little bit of our surplus and trying to work in that way. Uh, the only problem was that over the course of the year, we had $260,000 in income. Uh, and so you guys outgave by like 20% uh, this year. And so praise the Lord for you and your generosity, uh, and like what a God-glorifying, God-honoring, and exciting things, especially in a year in the midst of a pandemic where there are, are deep-rooted and wide financial questions in our culture, and so uh, to see God's people being generous, being faithful and giving, and watching us being able to move in ways throughout our community and among our church to, to really move forward with ministry and try to do a lot of things. We were able to do several things in the community. We were able to run day camp and burger giveaways and uh, block parties and nativity programs, all in these kind of different wild modified formats in this COVID reality, in large part because of the generosity of us together as a church. And so I, I want to thank you. Um, really, I want to thank God for you, uh, but you're, you're a part of that. And so praise you for his grace and his mercy. Amen? All right, so, um, so vote tonight if you're not going to come to the meeting tomorrow. Uh, we'll give you an annual meeting packet so you can see it, kind of see what our budget looks like next year. Uh, if you are able to come tomorrow or you want to join on the Zoom call, uh, I would encourage you to do that as well and just kind of hear about in a little more detail some of the things that we're doing and some of the places we're going. Uh, what we'll try to do is we'll probably try to incorporate that uh, little by little throughout our gatherings over the next few weeks, kind of let you know, hey, we think that God's going to do this over the next few months, and so we're excited about it. All right. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, there's a second thing I think that we have to spend just a couple minutes on uh, tonight, and, and that's uh, Heather alluded to it a little bit right before we started to sing. This week uh, was particularly 
discouraging. I'm sure there's probably a lot of other words we can use for that, but I'm going to use the one that's probably nearest to my heart. Um, And and so I uh, I do want to give you the biblical Christian R application for what you do with a week like this. Uh, And really, I think you could broaden this application out to a year like this uh, because what happened this week in the context of our nation and our capital isn't uh, vastly shocking or new or different than what we've seen over the past seven, eight, nine, ten months. In fact, protests and uh, chaos seems to be more normal than exception these days. And so out of that, I want to read you a passage in Scripture uh, and just give you a really straightforward, this is the Christian response, okay? Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, his disciple, who pastoring a church. He spends the first chapter uh, speaking about godly living and doctrine and and really just kind of introducing the letter to Timothy and encouraging him. Chapter 2 shifts into, Timothy this pastor, here's what you ought to do with your church. This is how you as a pastor lead your church. And this is what it says. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So um, here's, here's the Christian life in a chaotic world, and especially in a chaotic governing and ruling authority that we might exist in. That you and I are meant to pray for all those who are in authority with the hope that we would lead a tranquil and dignified life that first and foremost and above all sees Christ on the throne and seeks to do glory and praise to his name. Amen? And, and I'm not saying that all political parties are created equal, and I'm not saying that something wasn't corrupt, or I'm not saying that someone isn't this thing or that thing, or that there isn't a great deal of brokenness. In fact, I'm saying I don't think we should be surprised by any of that. Sin is pervasive in our world and in our own darkened hearts, and so out of this, uh, you should not be surprised. Here's here's what I'm telling us. Uh, We ought to be cautious to, in fact, I'm going I'm to use stronger language than that. I think it's necessary. We will not, cannot, and should not, as Christians, marry ourselves to any political party or political system because they don't have the answer. We do. You get that, right? We do. And so that's not to say that one's not better than the other or they're not broken in different ways. I, that's, that's not the argument. The argument is this, that you can, you can have some views, you can have passions, you can be involved. I, I, don't, I don't think you just disengage altogether. However, our goal is to be a people who could pray and petition and lead dignified and tranquil lives because our priority has nothing to do with political systems. It has to do with the glory of God and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? 
think it's important for us to hear. It's important for us to continue to preach. And, and here's, the, here's the thing that I think uh, we also ought to recognize. Uh, you're going to go out this next week into your context, uh, whether that's in your neighborhood or your workplace or whoever you're going to deal with. And I promise you that if your primary focus and your uh, tunnel vision is on proclaiming and loving Jesus Christ and not getting sucked into the political uh, just cesspit that is the United States right now, uh, it's going to be very refreshing for yourself and for the people around you. Uh, in fact, it's going to look like the salt of the earth in an otherwise uh, really ugly scene right now. That's, that's free. All right, let's pray, and uh, we'll go to John chapter 1. Heavenly Father, uh, I'm, just, I'm grateful for the ability to study your word tonight together as your church. I pray that we would praise and glorify your name. I pray that as we consider uh, the gift that you give us in the truth of your scripture, that uh, you would bring it to life and that it would uh, be empowering, bringing us to life, a life that is in you, uh, not in ourselves, that we would be a people born of God and that we would live like it. Help us with it, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we began, uh, this is the second week of a series in the Gospel of John. If you missed last week, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I, I think I encourage this with some frequency, but uh, know that this is as hearty of an endorsement as I'll ever give about this. Uh, you need to go onto either our website or the YouTube page or our Facebook page uh, and watch the sermon or listen to the sermon from last week uh, because we began a series that's going to take us through Memorial Day. Uh, so it'll be months long uh, through the Gospel of John. And though we'll recap over and over again kind of some of the main purposes and themes in the Gospel, uh, we really kind of laid the foundation for the whole of the series last week. And so I'm not going to just preach the whole thing again. You've got to be responsible enough to spend some time, go listen to that, find, find 30 minutes in your life where you can uh, take some time to do that. Because uh, what we really laid out in a whole lot of detail was that John's Gospel, uh, it bears some unique markings compared to the other three that are known as the synoptics because they're uh, semi-synonymous with each other. They, they kind of run the same path and John looks from a different perspective. Uh, one of the things I said last week, I said you're just going to have to trust me on it and I'll kind of try to give you some examples as we go, is that that doesn't mean that John's gospel was contradictory, but rather that it was complementary, that John is filling in the pieces that others didn't include, and he's leaving out things that would otherwise be redundant. So in other words, John has read either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or all three of them even potentially. He knows that they're being circulated in the early church, and so he's not going to just write to retell the same accounts of the story, but rather he's including things that the other gospel writers didn't, and he's leaving out or glossing over or moving past quickly some of the things that the other gospel writers spent a great deal of time on. And so, um, for example, we're going to look at John the Baptist uh, later tonight. Uh, John doesn't include anything about his birth account because uh, that's detailed well in the Gospel of Luke. And so uh, he's going to move past that. Um, or, for example, I'll give you one more. Uh, in Mark, the end of chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to trial. And here's what happens. Uh, the people who bring him to the trial to get ready to accuse him, to try to crucify him, say... We heard him say, 
I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build up another made without hands. And they they say, this is blasphemy. This is inciting insurrection. He says he's going to destroy the temple. He's busting in. He's destroying. He's taking a picture on the senator's desk, right? Like that's a Keep going. Uh, He's going to do this. Here's the thing. Mark's gospel never includes that Jesus ever says anything of this sort. So what does John do? Well, in John chapter 2, he includes that early on in his ministry, Jesus, in speaking to the religious leaders, says this, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And later, uh, the author of John is going to note that uh, Jesus is referring to the temple that was his body. And so uh, you can see kind of how uh, he fills in some gaps in the Gospel of Mark where you're going, well, is this true testimony or is this false testimony? No, well, it's false testimony. What they've actually done is they've perverted the words of Jesus to fit their own narrative. And so John's going to complement the other Gospels in this way because ultimately his purpose is this. It was a singular twofold purpose that we would know the identity of Jesus Christ, that you would know who Jesus was. And we spent a great deal of time last week laying out that he's more than a man, that Jesus was God, that Jesus is God, and in the flesh came for us, and that in believing in that, that you would have life in his name. Not physical, but spiritual life, eternal life through faith in Jesus and no other thing. That John's purpose is apologetic and evangelistic, that you would know who Jesus really is and that in knowing him, you would be saved. And so all of the pieces of his gospel account are really going to kind of boil down to that. Who is Jesus and what is he all about? In fact, we said over the first 18 verses of the first chapter, he's going to spend a bulk of his time really laying out, uh, without any kind of teaser alert, just the, the straightforward identity of Jesus Christ as someone who's not simply human. And in order to do so, uh, we pick up in verse 6, he's going to He's going to compare Jesus or set him alongside another well-known man of that time. Look at it with me. John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. The author writes, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. Now let's, let's pause there and do a little homework and help you get caught up with who the author is talking about. Now, John's a pretty common name. Uh, it could get confusing. You could think he's talking about himself and he's the author of the book. That's not the case. The author, John the Apostle, is speaking here about the last Old Testament prophet as we might know him, John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is sent by God to be a forerunner or a witness to testify and make ready the path that Jesus would then lead people to the truth of God by being 
himself, right? So here's, here's where it leaves off. In the end of the Old Testament, as you have it in your Bibles, uh, there's a little teeny prophecy uh, by a guy named Malachi. It's about 400 years before Jesus is born. And here's, here's how Malachi finishes up his prophecy. From the words of the Lord, he says in Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He'll restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And then the Bible is silent for 400 years. In fact, if you were here on Christmas Eve, you remember we talked about the deep and long expectation that the people existed in when Jesus arrives on the scene. And they had, they had not heard anything from God for 400 years. And the last thing that they had heard was someone in the way of Elijah was going to show up and make ready the people before God came. And so uh, they're expecting at this time two things. They're expecting a Messiah to come, but they're expecting before that Messiah someone to come and proclaim that a Messiah is coming. That was the word of the Lord, the prophecy of the Lord. And so Luke does us a great deal of service, kind of fills us in. I'm going to give you some of the academic and the biographical history here, and then we'll talk about why this is is so important on the second half. Uh, Luke fills us in on what happens with John the Baptist. So I'm not going to read it all to you. You're going to have to do some homework this week. You go read this in Luke chapter 1, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Uh, It turns out, that just before Jesus is born, that there is a man named Zacharias. Zacharias is a priest according to the sect of the Levites, which means that he works at the temple. Just so happens that he is on duty at the temple. They draw lots to see who's going to go into the holy place of the temple to burn incense while the people pray. Uh, It's randomized. The lot falls on Zacharias. He heads in to burn some incense while he's there on the right hand of the table that he's burning these incense to the Lord, uh, stands an angel, appears to him. The angel Gabriel, in fact, who is mighty and terrifying. And he looks at Zacharias and he goes, hey, you're going to have a son. Not only are you going to have a son, you're going to name him John. Now, there's, there's a problem with this. In Jewish culture, your firstborn son was vitally important. There, in fact, there was few things, if anything, that was more important to a Jewish man than to have a firstborn son that you named after you. What was his son going to name? be named? Zacharias. That was his name. So be Zacharias. That was the plan, and then an angel shows up and goes, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him John. Not only does he say that this is going to happen, but he tells him specifically why this is so important. In verse 15 of Luke 1, he says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll drink no wine or liquor, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit uh, while yet in his mother's womb. That, that he's alive, conceived, Holy Spirit's working in him while he's still in his mother's womb. That bears some implications in our society. Anyways, it says, And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
So here's what happens. The angel shows up to Zacharias. He goes, hey, remember that prophecy in Malachi? Boom. It's going to be your son. Now, Zacharias goes, that sounds nuts. How would I know that that's true? Right? The angel, Gabriel, not too excited about that response. Here's, here's what he goes. Because you doubted me, you can't talk. You're done. Zacharias walks out of the temple, and everybody's like, man, why is this guy taking so long in the temple burning these incense? Like, it doesn't take that long to set stuff on fire. Like, should we go in after him? Or, and then he shows up outside of the temple, and he can't speak, and he's making all these signs about the fact that he saw an angel, and the angel said he was going to have a baby, and he doubted this angel because him and his wife are pretty old, and so it's like, I don't think we're going to have kids. You know, it's like, hasn't been working so far. And so the angel has taken his voice away, and they realize, like, something must have happened here. So they're just kind of keeping an eye on it. The people, the crowd, they're sort of figuring out, like, Zacharias, like, that's kind of weird. You know, he heads home after his priestly duties are up, hangs out with Elizabeth, uh, not the same way that it happens to Mary. They're married. They get pregnant, okay? So now, in the womb, here's, here's what's really cool about this. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, right, goes and visits Elizabeth while she's still pregnant. And uh, Mary's pregnant at this time, just a little less pregnant. Uh, And Elizabeth has John in the womb. He leaps with joy, filled with the Holy Spirit. Who's the first person that ever glorifies the incarnate Jesus on earth? John the Baptist, before either of them are even born, right? And so uh, here's what happens. John gets born. Elizabeth has a baby. In the meantime, it's now been 9, 10, 11 months, and Zacharias can't talk. And so, uh, like, pretty inconvenient in the household, I would imagine. Uh, But in this day and age and culture, uh, what would happen is you wouldn't give the baby a name until the eighth day. On the eighth day, you would take the baby, and in a community ceremony, you would have that male child circumcised into the people of Israel. And upon his circumcision, they would say, we're going to name him Zacharias after his father. And Elizabeth goes, no. You name him John, right? So apparently they had like some tablets or something. Like Zach, uh, over this time, he's being able to communicate to Elizabeth, hey, I saw this thing. I'm sorry I can't talk. We got to name the kid John because I believe it now. Uh, they're like, what? Why would you name him John? Everybody names him after their father, right? And, and at that time, they give a tablet to Zacharias. He writes it down. He's like, listen, we're naming the kid John. They're all astonished, and immediately Zacharias can talk again because his doubt has left him, his belief has filled him, and he then testifies that this is what happened, and this kid is going to grow up to be the one who comes, just like the Bible intended it to be, just like it had promised generations before that God was going to do this, and he does. John grows up. uh, He kind of uh, just treated honestly he's kind of a weird guy um he's he's making his clothes out of like camel's hair he's eating like locusts and honey out in the wilderness like just just an odd fellow right like not living in town with the rest of them it's kind of a hermit out there people are coming to him and here's his message that he is not the messiah but he's making ready the path because the people need to know that he's coming and and you ought to repent 
and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Make the path straight because there is one coming after me. This is how John himself is going to describe it later in chapter 1. There's one coming after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That he recognizes that he's getting things ready for Jesus to come. He's the forerunner for Christ. In fact, uh, it just turns out that the next day after John says that, he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Here's here's the purpose and, and reality of John's life. John is a prophet from God, uh, born miraculously, brought in the way of Elijah for the people of God to make way for Jesus, who then testifies to Christ. Here's the question, though. Why does this matter? Right? Like, what's so important about this guy? I mean, we just got through, last week, we were talking about Jesus being the incarnate deity existing from the beginning of creation. We were talking so deeply about his identity and these massive things. And then he just like quickly goes to, oh yeah, and there was this other guy. And this other guy was not God. Well, yeah, okay, duh, right? Like everybody else was not God. I think we got that. Uh, And his role was not to promote himself, but to testify to the light. So why is this so important? I, I think there's a couple reasons. All right, here's, here's what the author is meaning to get us to in this passage. First of all, I, I think he wants us to see something that I will take every opportunity to point out to you that I can because I think it's so vital to our understanding of Christianity. That Jesus was the plan all along. That, that we don't read the Bible in particular We do not read the Old Testament thinking that if God's people would have just figured it out then, all would have been better, right? That, that, oh man, if they weren't evil, if they didn't eat that apple, if, if people weren't evil and they didn't need the flood, if Abraham would have obeyed, if Isaac, Jacob, if they, if they just would have been better, that it seems like God just fails and fails and fails until the ultimate uh, solution comes in. That's not how we read the scriptures. Nor do you read the scriptures in this way that I think is really popular within the Christian church. That we tell the Old Testament narratives like they're individualized moral stories. And so, so we say, oh, you know, you ought to be selfless and kind like Ruth is, or you ought to be uh, courageous and faithful like David is, or you ought to be wise like Solomon or have a lot of wise. I don't know what you want to do like Solomon. But, but in that, right, that you ought to do these things based on the stories individualized, and you miss the fact that that's not the intention of the Scriptures. Here's the intention of the Scriptures, that you and I would see that God from the get-go intends to show and display his glory in Christ. That from the beginning, this is, in fact, Christmas Eve, we we talked about this and just gave you a few of these examples. From the beginning, uh, 
mankind falls, uh, the apple is eaten, and the promise of God uh, to Satan, right, to the serpent, is that one day the seed of the woman is going to come and he will crush your head. That a few chapters later, God is making covenant that he will not destroy the world again, but save it. There, then a few chapters later, right, God is saying that through your line, Abram will come, with the, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And a few chapters after that, it just goes on and on and on and on. You get David, and, and, and he promises David, hey, one from your line is going to sit on the throne forever, right? It's uh, the, the literary term, if, if you're good at like 11th grade English, I wasn't, but I do remember this, is foreshadowing, right? The, the whole Old Testament is foreshadowing the coming of Jesus. And so when the author is noting John, he's noting that the Old Testament closes with the promise that someone's going to come and declare that Jesus is about to arrive. And lo and behold, here's John the Baptist. He comes and fulfills this because everything was built up to this point. It's not an accident, but rather this is what it was for. Now, now here's the second thing. I think the author wants to clarify and point out that Jesus is unique as God and man, even from John the Baptist, who, who a lot of people at that time had put into a wrongly elevated position. Now, here you can see why, right? Because uh, he was born of miraculous terms. He was presented by an angel, Zacharias. Uh, in fact, uh, Jesus himself is going to, at one point, call John the Baptist the greatest man ever born of a woman. Right? And, and so what happens is early in his ministry, even after John the Baptist is killed, which he's, he's beheaded for uh, being a little too honest to uh, a religious leader at that time who's, who's really corrupt and horrible. It's a different story for a different time. But even after this, people are following not Jesus, but John the Baptist, even years after Jesus' death and resurrection. I'll, I'll prove it to you. In the book of Acts, uh, in fact, late in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul is traveling on his missionary journeys, and it says that he, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country, and he came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. And he said to them, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, uh, no, we, we haven't even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit, like, you talk about Paul. I don't even know what that is. I never heard of that. And he said, into what then were you baptized? Says, Hold on a second. How could you be baptized if you didn't receive the Holy Spirit? We baptize. Remember when we do a baptism, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Buried in likeness of his death, raised to walk in new life. Because water baptism is a picture of a bigger and greater reality baptism into the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit, being born again, being made alive in Christ. And so Paul goes, uh, well, then what were you baptized into? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus the Lord. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men. So here's, here's what had been going on. John 
had built a following despite the fact that repeatedly he's saying, hey, there's one coming after me that is greater than me. People were following John and didn't know anything about Jesus. And so John, the gospel author, is going, listen, here's, here's vital for us to understand. Jesus was uniquely different than, than any other man any other thing, any other self-help program, any other uh, religious identity, any other thing that you might put in its place. Jesus, as God, is unique in the ability to bring us to spiritual life, to make us right before God. Here's, here's um, how I think we miss this at times. Uh, Paul, Paul, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5 talks about this. He says, uh, you know, the truth is, one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us that in, in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Here's, here's his point in this passage. Jesus is not the only person in the history of the world that dies for another. In fact, uh, it is um, perhaps not even hard to comprehend that you and I might choose to lay down our life for someone else. If you, if you have kids, uh, that doesn't seem like a hard decision, right? Uh, and, and frequently throughout the history of the church, many are martyred for the cause of the Lord. They're, they're killed in horrific ways. Uh, they're killed to spare others. That, uh, that act of selfless, generous love is repeated consistently throughout history. Here's, here's the question. Why does that not save? And, and here's what John means to say as he speaks about John the Baptist. Because Jesus was not just a man. That he is unique and different. That John was not the light that Jesus is. Look at how he continues on here in John 1. He says, there was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Listen, here's, here's the last thing that I think is so important about this and why he begins with John as not the light, but testifying to the light. Because Ultimately, the only way you and I have life spiritually is if we are born of God from the one who enlightens all men. That, that Jesus is the source of light and life spiritually and is what causes us to be born of God. Now watch, watch this connect, right? Look at what John says does not work in verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. The blood refers to your, your heritage, your ethnicity, your background. That, that you are not right with God just because you were born of a certain tribe or tongue. You're not made right with God because you have such and such a heritage or you are in such and such a background, right? We, we actually, in men's Bible study, talked about this a little bit this morning. You are not made right with God because you are born in Jewish heritage. It wasn't the heritage of the Jew that made them right with God. It was that they believed God and it was credited to them as righteousness. That their faith was in God and it made them righteous. That Jesus has always been the source of spiritual life and salvation. That it will not be by your heritage nor of the will of flesh. It won't be through your hard working good deeds that if you just be more religious and you just do the right things and you just follow the right stuff and maybe you just uh, listen to a good religious guru and try to be kind to others and do enough good things that you would be made right with God but rather that you must be born of God. Not the will of not the blood, not the flesh, not the will of man, that it will not be through religious systems or structures. It will not be through your good deeds. It'll only be through Christ. Now, now think about this. Remember, remember I said the last, and we'll finish with this, the last thing that is written in the Old Testament is that there's, there's going to be someone in the way of Elijah who will be a forerunner. Here's Here's what's real interesting. The verses right before that explain what he's going to forerun about. And this is what it says in Malachi 4. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Sun, S-U-N. Not S-O-N, sun of righteousness, S-U-N. As in the source of righteousness, the source of what John's going to use uh, a few books later in the scripture as the source of light. That, that John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. That he came to magnify and testify about the coming of Jesus. Now here's why it's really fascinating. A few chapters later in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself, talking about John, is going to say this. He's going to call him the light. It's going gonna, it's gonna to work like this. John chapter 5, verse 33. You have sent John, this is Jesus talking about the Father, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from, from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. Now listen as he talks about John. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, that seems contradictory to me to say John was not the light and then just a couple chapters Jesus says he's a lamp and you rejoice in his light. Here's, here's where we finish. John uses two different words there. In John 1, here's the word for light. It's, it's phos, uh, the Greek word. It means the essence or the source of right, light, the sun of righteousness. It's where the light comes from. And, and when Jesus refers to John as the lamp, he uses this word luchnos. It's, uh, it means like the reflection of or the pressing out of light that you've received. Here's, here's what the Christian life is ultimately all about. 
It is you and I recognizing that in our own ability, we are helpless and powerless to overcome our lack of good deeds, our lack of self-righteousness, our lack of ability to please God, and we must be born again by faith in the light of God, in faith in Christ. And then for, for many of us in this room who have placed said faith there, we've been passed from spiritual death to spiritual life. What do you do? What is the Christian life ultimately about in its essence? Well, I think, I think John is answering that here. He's saying this. You just reflect the light. You, you reflect the light of Jesus. Uh, you and I are the light of the world, not from our own ability, not from our own righteousness, not from our own good deeds, but that you and I possess Christ, the one who is light, and we let it shine into the darkness. That we are like a city set on a hill that cannot be hid, that we spread the good news of Christ to the world. That's what it means to be born of God. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you help us shine your light into all of the earth. I pray that you you help us in our family, you help us in our neighborhoods, you help us in our workplace, you help us in every interaction that we have to be a people who would reflect the light of your son that we would accurately recognize your identity as the sovereign god of the universe and that it would be awe-inspiring that it would it would affect us in deep ways and cause us to want to love and follow you knowing that we have been born